Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Dr. Heidi with my mom, Dr. Gloria, and our second guest today is Dr. Frank R. Lewis, and our topic is Remembering Our Siblings. Dr. Frank Lewis lost his brother, Dean, in an automobile accident in 1983. He led a sibling support group of the Compassionate Friends for 10 years and was a keynote speaker at the Compassionate Friends National Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, where he is a senior pastor of the First Baptist Church. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you, Gloria and Heidi. It's great to be with you today. It's great to have you on. We were talking before you came on that uh, we have something in common. You lost your brother, Dean, and we lost Scott the same year, and that they were the same age, right? That's right. They were and they died eight. the same Well, they both died in auto accidents. Correct. Oh. Well. And Heidi, you were around the same age as uh, Yeah, I was 20 at Frank. the time, and Frank, you were 24, so we were both in our 20s. That's right. It was, uh, you know, you just think, you think those things will never happen to you, mm-hmm. but they do. Yeah, and and tell us a little bit about uh, circumstances around Dean's death. Well, Dean was uh, 17. He had just turned 17 on Sunday, and his death took place on Friday night the following week. Um, The car that he was in was actually a car that had belonged to uh, a family friend uh, that that we knew in our community. Uh, One day I learned that the gentleman that owned it was trying to get rid of the car. It was an old Mercury Marquis in 1968, you know, one of the biggest cars I think that ever came off of Detroit assembly line. And uh, here, here was my little brother looking for his first car, and so I think they sold it to him for about $400. The car needed a new muffler to be installed, and my parents took the car to a uh, place where that could be done, and apparently it was not installed correctly. And so on Friday night, my little brother and his girlfriend were sitting in the car listening to the radio, and they were both overcome by carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm. Wow. Incredible. And, and they were outside, you said. Well, they were they were sitting in the, in the car. Uh, you right. know, it was it was a winter night. But and the car wasn't in the garage with the doors closed. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Yes, they were they were outside. In fact, it was a very scenic overlook in the Birmingham, Alabama area where he lived, right. um, and you know, just a place where teenagers went sometimes. And yeah. um, about two o'clock in the morning, uh, a police cruiser came by and saw the car, and, and it, the motor was running because it was a cold winter night, et cetera. And, uh, of course, the officer was, uh, you know, he was just really afraid what he was going to find when he knocked on the window, and uh, that was exactly the case. Both both of the teenagers were, were overcome by, by the poison there. In the Frank, acid. call me naive, but I didn't know you could die that way. Well, the uh, coroner told our family that the muffler had not been installed correctly, and so oh. the, the fumes from the exhaust came straight up through the trunk, right through the speaker grids and right into the cockpit of the car. And uh, any time that you see, uh, I've since learned this, of course, any time that you see a car with with bad exhaust, uh, that is just a danger. And, of course, you know, a lot of teenagers, their first cars are old, hand-me-down cars, et cetera. And we, so, which is unfortunate, which, is, you know, happened with Scott, too. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we should the kids should be driving better cars than their parents. Well, you know, you, you, you think that, and, of course, parents want to give their kids the best car they can, you know. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, not driving or whatever. But this was really an unusual kind of circumstance. A lot of guilt to go around, I bet, though, right? 
Well, you talk about guilt, and in our family, we, we dealt with it in a lot of different ways. I, I felt extremely guilty because uh, I was involved in the conversation where it was discovered that this car was for sale, and I went home and mentioned it just sort of casually, and the next day, uh, you know, that car was sitting in our driveway. And I've, I've often thought, boy, what if what if I had not been there? What if I had not been a part of that conversation uh, what, what was I supposed to be doing instead of being there that day? You know, and, and so you, you wear that kind of guilt for a while. My father felt extremely guilty because he he actually carried the car to uh, the retailer where the muffler work was done and talked to the mechanics about it, those kind of things. And uh, this was a place where my father had spent his entire professional career. He sold appliances. Uh, this was a mechanic shop that was in the same retailer. And, uh, you know, he, he just felt uh, this, this personal sense of, you know, what have I done to my son that I carried his car in and had this work done and it wasn't done properly and it, it, didn't, it didn't affect him driving the car. The car had to be sitting still for the carbon monoxide to, to work its way into the trunk. The way now, how did he deal with that? And how do you, you're a pastor, how do you help people deal with this guilt? Do you see it a lot? Well, in my father's case, uh, he was hospitalized uh, probably about two months after my brother's death. And the doctors that were treating him finally just determined, you know, it was the depression. And they said, you know, there's nothing we can do for a broken heart. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with my father during that, those days just trying to, you know, I, I was a minister in, in his church as well as being his son. And so oh, at that time, you were, I was going to ask you if you went into the ministry after or before. No, I was actually the student minister at the church where my brother attended and where my parents had attended all their married life. And so, uh, you know, you're trying to you're trying to wear two hats. You're trying to be the the grieving sibling son. Uh, who sees his parents going through this agony, and, and then you're also their minister, and, and you know I was I was trying to help the student ministry there as well because all of my brother's peers were in that youth group, you know, and they were of course feeling some sadness, and, and at the same time trying to care for me, that that sort of thing. So there was there there were a lot of feelings going a lot of different directions at that time in our and, life. And you know, Frank, I think you're bringing up a really important point that happens a lot when. A sibling dies, we often are really so concerned with our parents that we try to remain strong for them, in front of them, and, and take care of them because they're going through such a devastating loss of their child. Right. Well, there, there's something that uh, probably has some, some psychological names to it. Uh, you know, I, I, tried to, I tried to double. I tried to be my brother for my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I lived across the street in, a, in a, my own home at that time. But uh, I would I would frequently go by the house and see what my parents needed, see how I could help out. I would try to continue to do the chores that my brother had done, those kind of things. Uh, my brother and my father were probably closer than than he was to the other children in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, because my father retired the year my brother started the first grade. So. Every afternoon, my dad would pick him up from school, and they would spend all afternoon together. You know, and he'd work in his workshop and do those kind of things together. So there was a bond there that, that I recognized, and I thought, you know, well, I've got to be there to fill that void now in my father's life. And, of course, you can't do that, but nobody told me that at the time, you know. And, and you were you married then? Uh, I, I got married about eight months later. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, tough uh, role. And also, I think uh, I was a therapist at the time that my son was killed. And um, I, you know, you get into those roles, and it, you know, it's very hard to do your own grieving. That's true. And um, 
You know, I will say, though, I, I don't know exactly how we came at it, uh, probably just through a series of events in my family's life. Um, but we, we grieved openly. Uh, we had a very good relationship. We, we cried together. We laughed together. We, you know, cussed together when we would think about things that were, you know, going through his closet and trying to clean things out and that sort of thing. I mean, you know, so, so I think we handled our grief about uh, as healthy a way as, as any family really could. Um, just, just trying to put it out there. You know, I'm thinking when I hear this that Heidi probably, I, was your thought that you missed out on some things, Heidi? You were in college. So Frank was across the street. Oh, absolutely. I felt like I was very much grieving alone because I was I was so far away from my family. Nobody knew my brother. People didn't even often know anything happened. And I felt pretty isolated from any support group. So, yeah, I definitely felt like I missed out on a lot of the healing stuff and the grieving that the family did as a unit. Well, that must have been very tough. I can't imagine not having had that kind of support work around me during that time. Right, yeah, and I also think that there's a myth out there that unless you're living in the house, if you're living in the house with somebody, the loss is more significant and worse than if you're living away, and that's not true. It kind of sounds opposite. Yeah, it's it's absolutely not true. We each have very significant relationships with, with our siblings and our children, regardless whether or not they lived with us or not. So, um, yeah, and you know what another thing is that I really liked when you were speaking at Compassionate Friends is you brought up how although Dean is gone, he is still so much a part of your life, and you talked about things that you still miss mm. about not having him in your life. Sure, sure. I think of that. I think of that often. I mean, our, our families are going to get together like so many others in, in these next few weeks for Thanksgiving, and um, there will, we counted the other night. There will be 21 people uh, converging on my sister's house. Uh, my mother is still living. Uh, I have uh, three older siblings. They all have children and grandchildren now throughout those those, uh, those parts of their family. And uh, we will all be there together, and, and uh, there will be a sense of, boy, I wonder what Dean would be doing today. I wonder who he would have married. I wonder how many children he would have. Would his children be probably about the same ages as my children because we were closer together in age than, than I am to my other siblings Um uh, so, you know, there's that sense of, uh, boy, I, I sure wish, you know, that we, we could uh, uh, somehow see what that would have looked like, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that because that's, a, in a way, a happy thing. It kind of brings him into the fray. You know, people say to me, oh, you never get over it. And, and you know, who have never lost kids, oh, you never get over it. You know, and I know you don't. And, I, you know, I say to them, you know, you get over the suffering, Mm-hmm. But of course, you never forget the person. But isn't there a level of suffering that you that hopefully we're not maintaining that? It, it's really difficult. Well, hopefully, you know, I think in a healthy grief situation, you you grow through your suffering. You're, you're going to walk through the valley uh, that death shadow. The scriptures talk about that, but but you don't have to stay in that valley. And uh, everybody goes through that journey on their own pace. Um, you know, one of the things that I shared at the uh, national conference uh, convention was uh, a little quote from one of my good friends from Compassionate Friends, Kim Geringer. He used to always say, don't shoot on me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people will sometimes, uh, particularly those that have never experienced a significant close loss, they'll, they'll say, well, gee, it's been two weeks since your brother died. Shouldn't you be over this by now? Or it's been six months. Shouldn't you be getting on with your life? Well, mm-hmm. you know, I think everybody goes through that at their own pace and at their own time and, um for, for me, there certainly were some situations where um, walking through that sadness 
uh, it was it was suffering exactly what you described, and uh, you know it hurt to, to hear certain songs or to see certain friends or to you know see a car go by that looked just like his car. You know those kind of things would bring back early on some very painful memories. Uh, today, if I saw a 1968 Mercury Marquis, I would probably smile and say, oh, "Man, that was my brother's first car." You know, mm-hmm. um, so the, the memories do linger and they they change in terms of the kind of emotions that they bring forth in us, I believe. Mm-hmm. And like you said, even even 20 plus years later, we still miss our brothers, but we have we, the pain. Like my mom said, the pain is not there anymore, and the memories are different now. We can we can smile at memories now and embrace them. And I always say to people. You know, some of your best memories are yet to come because early on, sometimes the grief gets in the way of really thinking about the memories mm-hmm. and the pain. True. And True. once that is kind of, a, the pain is no longer as intense, we can kind of go down those roads and really immerse ourselves in some of those wonderful memories we had. Right, right. And, you know, for me, you know, that, that, took, that took about three or four years before some of that initial pain because, you know, you prepare yourself for that first year for all those anniversaries and birthdays and significant events. The second year, I, nobody told me to keep my guard up. So, you know, the second year probably hurt more. Um, because this is the way it's going to be. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then probably by year three, four and beyond, um, slowly um, some of those anniversary dates and birth dates and, and significant dates uh, I, I was able to associate good memories of the past and and find some healing ground to stand on. Mm-hmm. My question is, why would God let this happen if we had a loving God and knows everything? Well, that is a great question. And I think, I think, first of all, when I try to address that question with people, I talk about the character and the nature of God. And uh, because I do think there are some misunderstandings there. Uh, God has revealed himself uh, as a loving God, as a gracious God, a merciful God. Um, and when things, when terrible things happen like this, our, our first reaction sometimes is, God, where were you? I mean, that was my reaction. God, why weren't you there to protect my brother? Why weren't you there to watch over him and his girlfriend on, on that event? They were, they were great kids. They came from great families, that kind of stuff. Um, but, but I had to somehow come to the point of recognizing that God did not cause this. Now, he allowed it, and, and that's exactly what you said. He allowed this to happen, but I don't think God planned it or caused it or, you know, it wasn't in judgment for anything that my brother or his girlfriend had done or that something his parents had done or anything like that. Um, it, it, was, it was simply the result of living in a fallen world. I mean, our, our bodies are susceptible to what happens in a car accident. In my brother's case, he was poisoned by the gas from his exhaust, and, and our bodies are, are sus, you know, subject to that. Um, I, I tend to then try to take people on the journey to say, God didn't cause this. He allowed it to happen. But now you need to know that God is with you in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of this suffering. And, and initially, early on, people generally don't want to hear that, and I understand that. So you, you don't come down and preach hard on anything like that but but as as the grief begins to uh, the journey of grief begins to unfold and the shock begins to wear off I think people become a little bit more receptive to the idea that okay God's presence is here in a way that I've never felt him before that's especially true when there's a praying community that surrounds that person and, and they're they're asking God to you know minister and to help and I think God does um, 
uh, I've since discovered that in the midst of our tragedies, in the midst of horrible things like this that happen, that God strengthens us, and one day, not not initially, not not even the first year, but but down the road somewhere, uh, that that becomes a platform for ministry. Uh, your radio broadcast touches thousands of lives today, and and you know it's being used to bring hope and, and a sense of um, you know you're not alone in this journey of grief. And, and certainly, I can say for myself, I'm a much more sensitive minister because I have walked this journey. Uh, I don't think God, you know, zapped my brother. I don't think God said, oh, you're going to be a pastor. You need to experience uh, grief. But I think that because it happened, uh, the faithfulness of God is seen and that he's walked this journey with me. Mm-hmm. Well, now, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and I wondered, uh, what what do you do for your community then? And do you have any uh, suggestions for our audience out there? Well, there are a lot of things that churches do. Um, our congregation offers something called the Service of Remembrance. And, and you're in Nashville. We are. We're in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, there are uh, churches that do things. Sometimes they're called a blue Christmas service, uh, and typically those will be planned um, about the same time frame that our Service of Remembrance and Hope is. They're generally a week after Thanksgiving, around the first week of December, uh, this is before a lot of churches gear up with their big Christmas pageants and things like that, and it's a it's a very you know as you can imagine a very sensitive time. We've just gone through a Thanksgiving holiday, and we know Christmas is in front of us. And and if this is your first or second year to go through grief, or if this is your twenty fifth year to go through the grief experience, these are just these are just sad times. They they there's an emptiness that's there. So you might even go to um, you know a church and you find out about something that's going on in your community. But also, I want to remind people that the second Sunday in December is the worldwide candle lighting for the Compassionate Friends. And if you go on the CompassionateFriends.org website, you can find out where it is in your area. And groups of people get together and they do different things, bring pictures, maybe music. But the main thing is that at 7 o'clock around the world, they light a candle for their child or for their sibling or grandchild or friend. Uh, And as I said, go on the Compassionate Friends website and find out where they are. And I think I'm just going to chime in here because I think Thanksgiving can be really hard for people because it's a day of thanks. And many people feel that after a loss, there's nothing to be thankful for. And what would you say to people out there that have that feeling? What can they do on that day or what are your thoughts? Well, I I think that it's important to to try to find uh, something that you can remember and say, boy, I'm thankful for the good memory. I'm, I'm thankful for this life that did touch my life. I'm thankful for the joy and the happiness this person did bring to me. Uh, in some cases, you can find uh, the reason to be thankful is that there are others that, um, that that share this grief with you. They they loved your son or they loved your daughter or your sibling, and they, they come along beside you to say, well, we just wanted to sit with you and, and, you know, just let you know we're thinking about you today. And um, when, when somebody goes through the grief process, uh, it, it's it's always wonderful when when some of these people who are very very sensitive, perhaps they've been touched by grief themselves. They they know just how to do it. You know, they they come along and they don't have pithy little statements to say to us, but they they just know how to sit and be a friend. And of course, Compassionate Friends is just such a wonderful organization in that regard because of uh, the, the journeys that we're all on together. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, maybe uh, you need to think a little bit, maybe a little planning, realize that it's going to be tough. Heidi and I have said it before. For some people, it's tough two weeks before and the day is just a day. Uh, but for some of us, the day is difficult and you need to take care of yourself uh, during this time of year and, and decide what you need to do for yourself and, and look out for community or do the kinds of things that you need to do. Well, that's absolutely true, and and for me, several years ago, it just seemed like every time the month of January rolled around, I just went into this kind of deep funk, you know, and uh, I came to the point of recognizing that that the physical things of taking care of yourself, you know, making sure that you're getting plenty of rest and eating and exercising, those kind of things, getting out for a walk, um, that's an important thing to do. The the days are shorter and, and the nights are longer, so it's an easy month for people to experience depression, especially after the holidays for any given reason. But when uh, that was the anniversary death date for me, my brother died in January. His birthday was in January. So I, I just kind of walked through that for a while and, and, and had to learn, okay, let's anticipate this is going to be a tough time. Right. And um, I like the idea of walking through it, don't you, Heidi? Yeah, and realizing, okay, January is going to be hard. I mean, kind of observing yourself and, and preparing for that and saying, yeah. and recognizing it and saying, that's okay. It's going to be hard. I'm going to get through it, and it's okay. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, Frank, it's been great to have you on the show today, and uh, really appreciate your thoughts and, and the good work that you're doing in the world. Well, it's been an honor to be here with you today and look forward to more conversations in the future. Great. Thanks, Frank. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.